Please find your way in God's Word to Mark chapter 15, verse 33. In our journey of line by line in this book, we have come to the crucifixion. We have seen how the world's kingdom operates. Their, their so-called justice was based on lies, greed, selfishness, and hate. Totally opposite of how the kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of God was not brought in with force, as we know. Jesus came to serve, putting others before himself, and most of all, out of love. That is how the kingdom of God operates. Because of their hatred, we saw that the religious establishment wanted to put Jesus to death. Because of his selfishness, Pilate, who wanted to keep his position of power, agreed to put Jesus to death. Because of the people's desire to overthrow the Roman government, they screamed, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. None of these people wanted true justice. They were all looking to fill their own worldly desires. They were putting themselves first. They became a, a bloodthirsty mob, willing to see an innocent man flogged, willing to watch an innocent man try to carry a, a cross through town, willing to watch an innocent man get nailed to a cross. These people watched all of this through selfish eyes, not understanding what was really going on, not understanding what Christ was doing for all of mankind, not understanding how an innocent man who was about to die on the cross was actually putting them first. They were the ones, as Jesus said, the ones who knew not what they were doing. I can't help to think about the soldiers who put Jesus on the cross how they gathered together to cast lots for the meager possessions they, would, they took from an innocent man. How they were gambling for worthless benefits from their grisly work. Not understanding the immeasurable benefits the Lord was making available to them as he hung, dying above their heads. They were not looking at Jesus. Their heads were down. They were looking at what this world would give them. They were casting lots to see who would get some clothes that moths would eat as the Savior died on the cross. Obvious point here. When we do not have our eyes on Jesus, when we have our eyes on the things of this world, we miss all the benefits that God has for us. We miss the immeasurable benefits that Jesus has made available to all of us. Amen? I love that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you do, the things of this world will grow dim. It stands true today. So now we've come to the death of Jesus. Let's read verses 33 through 41. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabakani. Come, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in, the, in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and the younger of, of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So that's the account of the death of Jesus. Something struck me as I studied this text is that, think about this. Jesus coordinated his own death and funeral. You see that? Jesus controlled every detail of his own death and burial. So as we look at the death of Jesus and his burial, what we have here, we have confirmation in our hearts that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Jesus is the Son of God. As we study this text, we should come to the conclusion, as the centurion did as he looked up, he said, truly, this man is the Son of God. You know, this is the climax of this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we are near the end of this letter, and we get the confirmation we need to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. It is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we're able to see his deity and his messiahship. We can see that, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, who he claimed to be. Remember, he said, it is as you said. We also see the veracity of Scripture in his death and burial and resurrection. If you remember what we read a couple weeks ago as we looked at Isaiah 53, we saw amazing details about the death of Jesus and how it was going to happen. And we can read more in Psalm 22. We also see the sovereignty of God. You know, I was talking with uh, Frank the other week after church, and we were discussing the statement that Jesus made when he was telling his disciples about the suffering and death that was going to come upon him. And, and, and he said to them, he, he told his disciples, he said, look, this must happen. He said, it must happen this way. And me and Frank were talking about how all the people that played a part in the trials, in the beatings, in the mockery, at the cross, and the burial may not have known it, but by their actions, they were fulfilling what the scriptures had said would happen. That's truly amazing to me. The sovereignty of God, the providence of God, to me, is a greater miracle than a healing. God's plan, interwoven in the acts of man, is absolutely amazing to me. But it confirms that God is in control of all. The truth should, that truth should give us great comfort in our hearts. Because it's, 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 it is the sovereignty of God that gives us a peace beyond understanding. And that's why we can joyfully proclaim the living hope that we have in our hearts because, as we have, because we have seen the providence of God through the life and death of Jesus Christ. That, that's where that living hope comes from. The Savior has come just like God promised. We can see through the death and burial and resurrection that God accomplishes exactly what he plans, purposes, promises, prophesies, and he does it without interrupting, without suspending, without overturning the natural course of things. That is truly a great miracle. He does it by pulling together and orchestrating all the free behaviors of all people, all contingencies, all events, all actions, and all reactions. He brings it all together to accomplish exactly 
what he plans. That's why we are in awe when we think about how great thou art. I love it when a plan comes together. Amen? All done for his glory. Think about this for a minute. H have you ever tried to put an event together? <laughs> you know, doesn't have to be a big event, you know? Think about the prep it takes, all the different people, personalities, the emotions, and bring all this together. Coming to an agreement on the logistics, bringing all this together just to put a simple event. Think about how difficult that is. Maybe, just maybe, that will give you a tiny glimpse of how great our God is. He brings everything together to work out his holy plan, to provide salvation for sinful man. So I say it again, how great is our God. He's in control. That gives us comfort. And one statement that Jesus made confirms all of this, as we see as we go through this text. In John 10, 17, and 18, he said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. God is in control right down to how the Son of God will die and how he will be buried. Take comfort in that fact, people. Take comfort. Now, one of the first things I want to look at that, that happened when Jesus was on the cross is the darkness. What does this darkness mean? Look at the text. It's verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we should all ask, you know, what's going on here? You know, when, when we see events like this in the text, when we, we read scripture and come across something that's not the norm, we should ask questions. Darkness covering the land from 12 o'clock in the afternoon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon is not normal. So we must ask, what is going on here? Why is this happening while Jesus is on the cross? What's the meaning of this? First of all, it's not an eclipse, as some have suggested. This happened during Passover. All right, A solar eclipse requires a new moon. During Passover, we have a full moon, not a new moon. And also, an eclipse doesn't last for three hours. <laughs> That's the easy one. So, so, so why was it dark for three hours in the middle of the day? Now, what's the best commentary of the Bible? <coughs> the Bible, right? So what we do is we look back in Scripture and see and, and look what God says about light and darkness. Now, we could read the scriptures and see that God is often spoken of as light. Psalm uh, 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. There's many places in the word of God, in the word of God, that God is spoken of as light. Psalm 18.26, Isaiah, it's all through Isaiah. When God manifested himself to Moses on the mountain, he manifested himself as blazing light. So God is spoken of as light. But also, we can read in the Old Testament and see that God is spoken of as darkness. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15. Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, God appears in darkness. Exodus 20, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 8, and other places, God is also associated with darkness. So, so the presence of God 
could be manifest light and the presence of God could be manifest darkness. But there is a time of darkness that we read about that God tells us what I want you to see here, and it has to do with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, a technical expression for judgment, a technical expression for divine judgment. And if we go to the Old Testament passages that speak of divine judgment, we read things like, like Joel 1.15, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel goes on to describe what will happen in chapter 2, verse 10. The earth will quake, the heavens will tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice from his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? You could go to Joel 2. It says, I will display wonders in the sky and the, and the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will turn into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It is a time when God revealed is revealed in darkness and not light. Amos writes in chapter 5, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? even gloom with no brightness in it. Amos the prophet said in chapter 8, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. So what do we see in darkness? Divine judgment. In Zephaniah, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly, listen, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So as we can see, darkness symbolizes divine fury. Darkness symbolizes righteous wrath. In darkness, we see God's wrath being poured out. Darkness, then, is the ultimate form of God's presence in judgment. Don't miss that. In judgment. In this darkness, God is there, and he's bringing down <coughs> righteous judgment. Think about this for a moment. What is hell? Hell is everlasting subject to divine judgment. What did Jesus say about hell? In Matthew, he says, it is outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in a eternal, unrelieved blackness. And in that darkness, God is present. He is the one who is present in judgment in hell, divine judgment on sin. So, if there ever was hell on earth, it was from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock that afternoon in Jerusalem. For three hours, hell came to Golgotha as God unleashed the full extent of everlasting punishment on his son. God poured out his wrath on the son of God. In that darkness, God unleashed hell on his son. God is the true power behind the darkness of Calvary that day. That's why Jesus said in the garden when he was praying, he said, Abba, Father, 
if all things are possible, remove this cup. This is the cup that Jesus was talking about, that, that cup of wrath. And that's why when Jesus thought about drinking that cup, it made him sweat drops of blood because he knew those three hours were coming. Think about this. When Jesus drank that cup, he suffered the eternal hell of all the people throughout human history who would be saved. He bore all their eternal punishments together, and he did it in three hours of darkness. MacArthur points out that, as some may ask, if the sinner in an eternity of punishment can never pay the price, and, and thus it's eternal, how could Jesus in three hours receive the full eternal wrath for all the sinners who believe? Well, here's your answer. Here's why it had to be an act of God. Jesus could receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath because he is an infinite and eternal person. His capacity for everything is limitless and eternal. So I say again, how great is our God? The darkness on earth that day was not the absence of God, as some have said. It is the presence of God. It is God in full judgment revenge. God in full judgment fury. It is infinite wrath moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite son who can absorb all the tortures of eternity of hell and do it in three hours. That's where we see the greatness of our Savior. It is here. In those three hours that Jesus bore in his body, he bore our sins. He provided salvation. It is in those three hours that the Son of God was made sin for us. That is why when one receives the gift of God, when one gets saved from eternal damnation, they are broken over the sin because they see what Christ has done for them. When a sinner truly understands what Jesus has done for him, he's broken over his sin. Point to make here. When, when, when one gets saved, when we get saved, it ain't just all of a sudden we become sinless and we're holy people walking around on this earth not sinning. Not true. We all fail. We stumble. We sin. But what's the difference now? It's when we do sin, we're broken over that sin because we know what our Savior did. A man once said, it's not that you don't sin anymore, you just don't enjoy it anymore. Good point. We become broken because we understand the cup that Jesus drank in our place. Amen? Three hours of hell on earth, and in the ninth hour it ended. Three o'clock it ended. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing he said after the darkness. And this is where our hearts really ache for our Savior when we hear him say that. This is where some may ask, well, how can God let this happen to his son? How can a loving God let that happen to his son? The answer is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
God let this happen because there was a greater purpose. If you remember Isaiah 53.10, what did it say? It said that it pleased the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. It was the will of God that Jesus be treated in this manner and that he would die on the cross. Jesus said, take this cup, Father, please, but not my will, your will be done. It was God's will that the Son of God would be crucified, would be, would be a sacrifice for sin. It was God's will that the Son of God would die in the place of sinners. It was God's will that the Son of God would bear the punishment for our sins. Jesus understood what the cup was. And he was willing to do the will of God the Father in order to provide salvation for sinful man. And when it was all over, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now because... Many, because of that statement, many believe that God was not there, but, it was, but as we have seen, God was there. So why did Jesus say that? Why did he say what he said? Jesus made that statement after the judgment had ended. He said this after he had suffered the wrath of God. He said this after the darkness was gone. The darkness was gone, and so was God. God was there pouring out judgment on Christ. Christ knew that and understood that. And it was when it was all over, maybe just for that moment, when it was all over, Jesus was looking for that comfort that he once had with the Father. He was looking for that sweet fellowship in, that, in the unimaginable, incomprehensible exhaustion of just, have, of just having suffered eternities of hell in that moment. In his humanity, he was looking for comfort. And he cried out to his father. The exact words that were prophesied in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, he wanted that love back. You know, something to think about here as we see hell on earth at that time. Hell is the full fury of God's personal punishment. But know this, know this, know this about hell. There's no comfort there. There's no comfort. Punishment without comfort. Punishment without compassion. Punishment without sympathy. Punishment without relief. That's what hell is. No comfort. This stands true for Jesus. He suffered all that hell is, all the wrath, all the presence of divine wrath, and all the absence of the divine comfort. There was no comfort during that time. Jesus goes through all of that suffering and the first thing he cried out is, Father, where are you? All the beatings, the abuse, hung on the cross, suffered the wrath of God after all that. My God, my God, where are you? Jesus is feeling his absence. He needed the Father's love. Now, some of the people who were there on that day, the bystanders, or should I call them mockers, never understood what was happening at that time. They didn't get it. They knew about all the events that had taken place that involved Jesus in the last week. They were there. I'm sure they knew his history over the past three years of the healings and raising people from the dead. 
They just watched the world go dark in the middle of the day for three hours. <coughs> they hear Jesus cry out to God. And instead of contemplating what just happened, instead of seeing the light coming back around them and go, what's going on here? They go right back to mocking the king of the Jews. Right back to it, verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They heard what Jesus said. Look what the text said. It said, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. A loud voice. They heard what he said. So in a mocking way, they said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Why is this mockery? Why would they say that? Well, because in the Old Testament taught, uh, the Old Testament taught in Malachi 4 that when the Messiah came, Elijah would be present. So he's saying, he's calling for Elijah, they said. But the Jewish tradition now taught that not only that Elijah would be present, but they also believed that Elijah would return in times of crisis to protect and rescue the righteous. Remember, Elijah didn't die. God took him to heaven. They said, well, he'll come back. You know, the righteous ones, when they call for him, he'll come back. So they're saying, oh, if he's righteous, if he's righteous like he said, Elijah would come. They're carrying on, they're carrying on the mockery that has been happening since the arrest of Jesus. The darkness ends, bam, right back to mockery. You would think three hours of darkness in the middle of the day would have gotten their attention, but it didn't. And they carried this act all the way out to the end, just like they did when they, they dressed up Jesus. They didn't just holler things at him. You know, they dressed him up, put the crown on him, made fun of him. Just like they did here, they run to go get a sponge full of sour wine Let's keep him alive a little longer. Let's keep him alive a little longer and see if Elijah will come. They're just making fun of him. You know, Jesus did say, I thirst. Psalm 69, 21 said he would say that. And he was offered this drink here, but it, it was offered only in mockery. They were hardening their hearts even more, those bystanders. Why do I say that? They've seen it all. They've seen his miracles. They've seen his casting out of demons. They've seen his raising of the dead. They've heard Jesus' teaching. As a matter of fact, they heard some deep teaching for a whole week in the, in the temple. They've seen his compassion and his kindness, and they see him suffering on the cross, and their hearts are not moved by it in any way. They continued their absurdity. He saves others, but he can't save himself, they say. Their eyes were not on the Son of God. Their eyes were on the world. And verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus said with a loud cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. With a loud cry. Why with a loud cry? One thing, it shows his strength. Think about all he's been through. And he's able to, with a loud cry, yell out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He did it for the people who were there and for us today, for the world to know that Jesus did not die because he could not breathe. 
The way that everyone else died on the cross was they couldn't breathe. They couldn't hold themselves up. Asphyxiation, they died. Jesus did not die because he was out of strength. He was able to utter a loud cry. Listen, Jesus died in his own time, like I said from the beginning. No one takes my life from me. I lay, down, I lay it down of myself. Jesus chose when he would breathe his last. Again, God is in control. Amen? The Son of God set the time when he committed his spirit to the Father. Listen to what John says. John says, after Jesus was given the sour wine, in verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, sour wine he said, It is finished. It has been accomplished, he says. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's the death of Jesus when he gave up his spirit. Now, right after that death, Mark tells us of two immediate events that happened after Jesus gave up his spirit. Let's look at the first one. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a very important curtain because this curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The Holy of Holies is in the inner chamber of the sanctuary in the temple in Jerusalem. This is the most holy place. This 20 cubic by 20 cubic spot was reserved for the presence of God and could be entered only by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. No one else was allowed to go in there. Death. The high priest would go in once a year, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and on the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to make atonement for the nation on Yom Kippur, Kippur uh, the, the Day of Atonement. Now look, th this was the most solemn, holy day of all the Israelites' festivals and, and, and feasts. Once a year, once a year, the high priest was to perform elaborate rituals to atone for the sins of the people. So important to know about this because it really brings to light what Christ has done on that day. So th this was not a, a ceremony to be taken lightly because God wanted the people to understand that the atonement for sin was to be done God's way, not man's way. Not ever. Listen to the instructions that God gave the Israelites on how this was to take place. So before entering the tabernacle, Aaron was to bathe and put on a special garment. Then he was to sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family. The blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Then Aaron would also bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, and its blood was sprinkled and on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat, the second goat, was used as a scapegoat. You may have heard that word before. Scapegoat. So Aaron, or the high priest, would place his hands on the head, confessed over its rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and then they would send this goat out into the wilderness with an appointed man, who then would release that goat, scapegoat. The goat carried on itself all the sins of the people into the wilderness, which were forgiven for another year. This was done year after year after year. It was a sacred ceremony 
because God wants his people to understand the seriousness of sin, the cost of sin. So this curtain that separated the holy of holies from the outer outer chambers and only a high priest once a year could go behind that curtain into the dwelling place of God. Now this curtain, it symbolizes the sinner's separation from God. We are separated from God. Our sin separates us from God. No access to God. The high priest, when he went in there, he quickly went in, he sprinkled the blood, and he quickly came back out. I guarantee he was nervous. I would have been. You would have been. But with the death of Jesus, listen, the new covenant, you hear us speak of that a lot, the new covenant of salvation was ratified. Like we have just seen, Christ paid in full the punishment, the penalty for sin for all who would believe. And officially, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday in April, in the year A.D. 30, the old covenant was abolished at 3 o'clock. At that moment, when Christ died, when the penalty for sin had been paid, that curtain was torn from top to the bottom. At that moment, the temple was nullified. The priesthood was voided. All sacrifices became pointless because the only true and saving sacrifice had been offered. When Christ died, the way into the presence of God became wide open for anyone. Anyone who has put their trust in Jesus can go directly to the throne of God. We can do that. God's holy, glorious presence is available. The way has been opened by the death of Christ. It's the end of the priesthood. It's the end of the sacrificial system. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. It's the end of the temple. It's not standing anymore. It's the end of the holy holies not needed. The whole system at that moment became null and void. Jesus warned of the end of that age. Watch this. It was at precisely 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon that the priests began to slaughter tens of thousands of Passover lambs so people can eat the Passover meal that evening. It was at that very hour that the Passover lamb of God had been slain by God. God's providence. God's perfect plan was carried out right down to the exact minute. How great is our God. So as we think about salvation, and as we think about the cost of sin, think about this. Just think about this just for a second. Jesus could have saved himself. He could have chosen not to take the pain and humiliation. He could have killed those mocking him. But he suffered through it all because he loved even his enemies. He endured this suffering because of his love for each one of us. Jesus died on that cross for us. And the penalty for our sins was paid by his death. As we've seen, he took the wrath of God for us. So we don't have to suffer that wrath. So our response what we now know should be that of the centurion soldier. Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. 
If we confess our sins, if we are truthful to ourselves about sin, we will then realize that we are in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. We are to put our trust in him and accept the free gift of salvation that God is offering to all who would believe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Amen? Pastor Matthew.